The days of our lives typically pass without a whole lot of notice. But then there are key moments that stand out. There are turning points. There are achievements. There are celebrations. Even tragedies. We fail to recognize the significance of some of these crucial events until years later. But we mark many of them with some type of ceremony or special recognition because we sense their importance. And so we observe weddings, graduations, and funerals. There are signing ceremonies and ribbon cuttings and anniversaries, birth announcements, and victory parades. But for the followers of Jesus Christ, there is none more important than the initiatory rite of baptism. Baptism marks a crucial moment in a believer's life. In the waters of baptism, we declare that we have died with Christ to our old identity in Adam. And we have risen with Christ to our new life in union with Jesus Christ. This is a declaration we need to mark and note observing together because it is so vital. In baptism, we declare that I have been united by faith to Jesus Christ. I confess my lifelong allegiance to Him as my personal Lord and Savior. Baptism. Now, as baptism announces my identity in Christ, so Jesus' baptism reveals His identity. Jesus' baptism was certainly different than ours. The historical context was a bit unique. The purpose was different. Even the meaning of Jesus' baptism was different than ours. Certainly, we don't question the candidate was different. But Jesus' baptism marked, nonetheless, a crucial moment in His earthly ministry and it revealed who He is. Jesus' baptism was both a turning point in salvation history and a point on which our salvation turned. This, as we come to Mark chapter 1, we've read this passage, as we come to just narrow in on three verses today, this is hallowed ground. This is a turning point in salvation history. And we must come with reverence to see it. And I, I struggle to even sense that, they, that we can get to the surface of the meaning that is here. Indeed, for all eternity, we will be searching out what is revealed here in just a few words. We want to soak in them today. Noting, first of all, the context of Mark chapter 1. Notice verse 1, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus, that is the Savior, Christ, Messiah, God promised to send to deliver His people, and He is the Son of God. Notice that phrase, the Son of God. Then in verses 2 through 3, we see a fulfillment of Isaiah the prophet as one would come to prepare the way of Messiah, to announce to God's chosen people that here He is, here is the promised one. Verses 2 through 3, and then as you just scan down verses 4 through 8, John prophesies that Messiah will come and will baptize His people with the Holy Spirit. 
So while we won't take the time to look through these verses carefully, notice the Son of God, verse 1, will come, verse 7, and note the Holy Spirit in verse 8. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let's narrow in then at verse 9. Jesus baptized by John. We have the simple statement in this direct sentence, verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. In those days, that is at the height of John the Baptist's ministry, somewhere along the Jordan River, likely across from Jericho in the region of Judea, southern Israel, people are going out to this remote, this rugged, this inhospitable area to be baptized. I mean, there are wild animals out here. It's not an easy place to go. It takes quite a journey from Jerusalem and from wherever else you're coming because people don't live here. But John does. And John sets up shop here at the Jordan River to say that those who will come out to me in this difficult place, identifying with my baptism, will be saying... We see the need of God in our sin and we repent. It was a baptism of repentance, a bit distinct from the baptism that we will observe here this morning in its meaning and in its purpose, but it was a baptism of people saying we need to repent and turn to God and trust in Him. And so they were coming out to John and being baptized there, taking this inconvenient journey to this difficult place and being baptized in a river. In that context, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, far to the north. That was a a long trip in those days. And he's baptized by John in the Jordan. Now Matthew emphasizes the fact that this was problematic, that John didn't even want to do it because his baptism is a baptism of repentance and that doesn't apply to Jesus. We can look at that argument another time, but Jesus says, for now, it's right. And it marks the beginning of His official ministry on earth. He's baptized in part to mark that beginning, that official start. To this point in Jesus' life, we know very little. A few sketchy facts about His birth, the locations where He lived in, to this point in time, and we have that intriguing event at age 12. And that's about all that we have. From this moment, at His baptism, we now read much about the life of Christ. This marks the beginning of His earthly ministry. His baptism, coupled with His temptation to follow, marks that start in Israel. But back to the earlier point, what did Jesus' baptism reveal about Him? I mentioned that earlier. It reveals It shows who He is. Even as candidates today are identifying themselves as the followers of Christ, Jesus' baptism said something about Him. Verse 10, And when He came up out of the water, immediately He saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on Him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are My beloved Son, with you, I am well pleased. 
Jesus comes up out of the water. He's coming up out of the river because he was immersed under the water per Jewish practice. This was just widely practiced by the Jews. Many ritual cleansings in which they submerged themselves in water or here were submerged in water. And so he comes up out of the river. But more significantly, he has come up out of the water to serve his divine calling as Messiah. It was a turning point. It was a significant statement as he comes up out of the water. So significant is it that the heavens were being torn open. I have no idea what that means. I don't know if words can probably fully express what took place there. But in some way, we could say this. Up to this first half of verse 10, a fiction writer could have written Mark 1. It'd be pretty crazy maybe to come up with the idea of eating locusts and wild honey that'd be difficult to devise in your own imagination if you're just trying to create an interesting story but it would be possible but i don't think in a million tries would a writer of fiction pen verses 10b through 11 it just wouldn't be done not in a million tries this is divine revelation as direct and noticeable as we find in the Bible. Divine revelation about who Jesus is, unimaginable by the human mind, it is indeed holy ground. The heavens are torn open. The Spirit descends. As He stands on the bank of the Jordan River, the veil that shields us from the divine realm is torn back as it were. It's always there, we don't see it, but here it is split open. And Jesus sees into that divine dimension, and Jesus comes up out of the water, the Spirit of God coming down and resting on Christ, anointing Him. The Holy Spirit is not a dove, but descends gently like a dove. And we could go into the relationship between the Spirit and the Son at great length, but suffice it here to say it is an anointing, it is a statement of His divine mission. And there is direct linkage as well between the divine realm and Jesus as the Holy Spirit bridges the gap between the two realms at this pivotal moment in salvation history. You might have discerned this even in what was read earlier, even in the songs that were sung, in how Rich prayed. It's hard to know exactly what Mark fully intended, but you might be hearing, might be seeing the characteristic brush strokes of the divine artist here. Did that catch you? There are waters. There is the Spirit of God hovering and there is the voice of God. Where have we heard that? There is a sense here in which Genesis is being revisited. He may be subtly indicating that Jesus is now positioned to redeem His creation. The Spirit, the waters, the voice of God. 
And that's what we read then next in the text, is this voice that comes from heaven. Through the split in the veil, separating the divine realm from the earthly, a voice sounds forth, You are my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. My Son. Takes us back to verse 1. It's the whole point of the book. He is the Son of God. My Son. This is, of course, then, the voice of God the Father. Mark doesn't even need to express that. It's so evident. If there is a son, there has to be a father. And calling Jesus my son is God's declaration that he is that father. So we have father speaking, spirit hovering, and the son on mission. And this son is my beloved son. Love characterizes the relationship between the father and the son. My Son with whom I am well pleased. We could certainly say that the Son is well pleased with the Father. But well pleased indicates here the authority of the Father over the Son and the Father's pleasure in the Son's obedience. Jesus consistently pointed to this relationship during His earthly ministry. We have in John chapter 14, Jesus saying, The ruler of this world is no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. There's the display of this love in what Jesus does is a display of love to the Father. In John chapter 8, Jesus says, And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. There's nobody here in this place that can say that. But Jesus could. I always do what is pleasing to Him. This is the way that the Son's relationship flows with the Father, united by the Spirit. So the Father sends the Son, commands the Son, and delights in the Son. As the Son comes to earth, He obeys the Father out of love for the Father. This is the relationship that is there. And this is the place where a preacher wants to come up with an illustration. And I haven't found one, a passage so frustrating in a long time because there just aren't any. And so I call upon you here this morning. We've got to work at this because we're coming to know who God is and there really aren't analogies. Speech fairly fails us to illustrate and explain, although what is clear and obvious here is the father-son relationship. There's an analogy there that fits our world and we can understand it on some level, but it's not really possible to illustrate this. We're just getting straight up God here. This is my son in whom I am well pleased, the one that I have sent who always does what pleases the father. But by way of illustration, perhaps we just go to further things that Jesus said. And that takes us here just for a quick side trip to John 5. You don't need to turn there, but I'll just refer to it. You've read it perhaps before. Jesus heals a man who had not walked for 38 years. I mean, he hadn't walked for 38 years. There's people we know that haven't walked for several months and they have to learn how to walk again. He hadn't walked for 38 years. Jesus says, be healed, and he gets up and walks away. That's wonderful. Problem is, it's Sabbath. You don't work on Sabbath. 
as far as the religious leaders are concerned. That's a, a point of tension then in the text. The Jewish religious authorities are angry with Jesus. He's broken the Sabbath law. Notice what he says. I have it on the screen here. But in John 5 he says, Therefore the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. He had the gall to have a man who hadn't walked in 38 years walk away. That's work. But Jesus responded to them, My Father is still working. And I am working also. In part, I think he means, it's Sabbath. And my Father's healing. My Father's working on this Sabbath. He's healing this man. And I'm then working as well. What the Father does... The Son does. God healed this man, period. Everyone knew it. So the Father worked on the Sabbath to heal the man, and the Son was working on the Sabbath to fulfill the Father's will. Everything the Father does, the Son does. And this includes creation. That was covered in John 1. The Word was with God, the Word was God, and nothing exists outside of Him, the Son, the Word. So as Carson comments on this, and I draw from many commentators, but this, I think, is beyond what I can summarize. So he says, Jesus can only do what He sees the Father doing. That's subordination. He'll never do anything the Father's not doing. He'll always link Himself to what the Father is doing because, the Greek word gar, for he does whatever the Father does. That's coextensive action. What the Father does, the Son does, but always in submission to the Father. You get the sense that you're standing in a territory that's really, really high and lifted up. You're right. So Jesus says on this Sabbath day, I'm working along with my Father. I'm doing what He is doing. Now, do you get the sense that Jesus' opponents are kind of standing there scratching their head going, this guy's nuts. What is he talking about? And they sort of walk away and say, whatever you want to do, Jesus, you know, I, I guess it's nice the guy got healed, but we're mad about you about the Sabbath. I don't know what on earth you're talking about. Do you get that feeling? Notice the next verse. Therefore the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus responded to them, My Father is working, and I am working also. This is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself what? Equal with God. What the Son does is always what the Father does in subordination, but in unity. They got it. They didn't say this is just some weird teacher that's got some weird ideas. They knew exactly what he meant. When he said, I am the Son of God, he was saying, I'm God. And that's why they want to kill him. So the relationship we witness between the Father and the Son at Jesus' baptism is an eternal relationship on some level. Let me come to that in just a moment. 
and step back from it and ask the question, when did Jesus become the Son of God? You may be thinking, some people even teach, he became the Son of God at the Incarnation. When the baby was born in the manger of Bethlehem, Jesus became the Son of God. The Father has a Son. It makes perfect sense. Except no father had a son that night. Well, maybe at his baptism, maybe here is where he becomes the Son of God. Some would even say some indeterminate moment in eternity past, which itself is kind of interesting, this time in eternity past, when Jesus was announced to be the Son of God. Somewhere along the line he became the Son of God, people argue. The problem with these answers is that they project our human experience onto God. When human beings witness a father and son relationship, it always has a beginning. There is a time when the son is not. The father is, the son not yet. And a time when the son is born. The conclusion is then that there was a moment when Jesus became God's Son. It sounds so reasonable. It's how we understand Father and Son in everything that we see in this world. There's one problem. God's not us. And when we come to find out who God is, we're going to have to think in categories we don't have. The father-son category is utterly helpful and essential, but we can't impose on God what we understand about our own world. God is distinct from us, and we must work to understand His unique and incomparable nature. If there was a time when the Son did not exist, then there was a time when God was not yet the Father. I say that again, if there was a time when the Son didn't exist, that is, if He became the Son at His incarnation, His baptism, or in eternity past, if there was a time when the Son was not, then there was a time when the Father wasn't the Father. But that's a problem, because God is eternal, is timeless, and He cannot undergo development or improvement. He is complete in Himself eternally. So if God is the Father, He always related to the Son as the Son. There is no other option. And that's what Jesus indeed indicates. John 17, 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence. Who is he? Father. He's speaking to him as the Son. Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In verse 24 of this same prayer, Son to the Father, He says, Father, You loved Me before the foundation of the world. You loved Me, the Son, before the world was founded, before creation. I was the Son, You were the Father before anything was made. So the relationship we witness between the Father and the Son at Jesus' baptism is an eternal relationship preceding the creation of time. Unlike our experience as human beings, this father and son relationship never had a start. When did he become the son of God? He always is the son of God. When did the father become the father? The father is the father. There's no start to that. Well, what was God doing before creation? Stories told of a rather rambunctious Sunday school student who regularly annoyed his teacher and 
one day this adrenaline-rich boy asked this question. And his frustrated teacher blurted out, What was God doing before creation? He was creating hell for boys who asked stupid questions. That was old school. Teachers would never say anything like that in these days. And maybe this teacher went and confessed sin. I don't know, but, and I don't know if it actually happened. But you get the point. But all humor aside, do we go there? Is that where we go? That's just a dumb question. That's beyond us. That's mystery we can't tap. Don't ask that kind of question. What was God doing? It's not your business to ask that. How would you answer it? We've got an answer here on some level. You loved me, John 17, 24 says, before the foundation of the world. As John will say elsewhere in his first epistle, God is love. It is his very nature to love. Think, if there was a time before the Son became the Son, then during that time the Father was not the Father and he had no one to love. There is a reason Allah is pictured as the merciful, the one who is merciful, but not really spoken of in terms of the one who is love, because there's nobody to love before the creation of the world. Further, this would mean that when God created the universe, He would be improving Himself by creating someone to love, and we His creatures would be giving Him life, as some have noted. What was God doing before creation? He was pouring out infinite stores of love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in a complete, infinite, and joyful relationship. This singular being was reveling in triune love. And let's take this to heart in a world telling us how wonderful we are. He didn't need us. Nothing improved in God when He created this world. Nothing. But in His infinite love, He did create the world. His love poured out from Father, Son, and Spirit. This three triune love poured out into the world that He created. Sharnak has noted, and I just paraphrase, if God was not good, it would be evil for Him to love Himself with an infinite, eternal love. And if there was a greater good than God, He would be evil to love Himself above that greater good. But since there is no greater source of goodness, since God is perfect goodness in Himself, God would be evil if He did not love Himself supremely. And as all-wise God, God alone can know the fullness of His goodness, and so God alone can love God with a perfect love. Let's bring this down to the river. There on Jordan's banks is the image of God loving you. There the gospel message begins to be announced. The love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit now standing on the banks of this river pressing forward the new creation ultimately, the redemption of the creation as that love pours out to us.
Jesus loving God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Right here, loving the Father that way and the Father speaking that love to him that way as they had throughout all eternity. Jesus prays in John 17 and verse 26, I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. United by faith through the work of Christ to this love that is eternal. He welcomes us into it. God the Father loving the Son, the Son loving the Father, and the Holy Spirit standing out as a perfectly uniting person to unify that love and to make it pristine and whole as it flows in these three directions. This is nothing short of awesome. It stretches us tremendously. We're unable to get to the depths of it all. But where it points within this gospel message is to this one who dies to pay the penalty of sin, who rises from the dead to give life and to bring into this life those who trust Him as Savior. There is such pristine holiness here as we see the Father speaking to the Son of this love and the Son responding to this There is so much here that is pristine and pure and holy that we feel very dirty in its presence. But this is the love of God as well. To take us in our dirt, in our sin, in our weakness, and to turn to Christ whose righteousness is given to us and who on this mission brings in His people to the love of the Father as He loves us through the Father, doing the Father's work, obeying the Father's call, and we entering into that relationship through faith in Christ, washed by the Holy Spirit of our sin, of our depravity, of our rebellion. And that's what these baptismal candidates do as they come today, is to identify with that message with the waters of baptism, a symbol of the washing of the Spirit of God and an entrance into the love of God that has been pouring out into the Trinity forever and ever and will forever and ever. We identify with this message through the only one who can bring us into it, and that is Christ crucified and risen. These candidates identify with this message. Do you? It is a personal question. Do you? Have you entered into that relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit through the Son and His mission? It's not something you purchase. It's not something you earn. It is a gift that you receive from a God who loves you. I encourage you, if you've not received that gift, if there's not a joy in God that you uh, experience today through your knowledge of what He has done, not a fellowship and a relationship with this triune God, come to Him today. He sent Jesus for this purpose. He was baptized and He stood up on that Jordan to fulfill His mission so that He could draw you into that love. Come today. For those of us that have trusted that message, we identify here in this place with Christ crucified and risen as His children, God being our Father. Lord,
draw us to you, to the light of who you are, to not be content with cheap substitutes and alternative gods that are so easy to understand, that behave. They sit on a shelf, they do what we tell them to do, or at least we hope so. We are so thankful that you are an eternal God, never changing because you can never be perfected. You are perfect love. You are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from all eternity. And in this joy, in this relationship, in this love, we have come to you. I pray that you draw each of us to yourself in unique ways and that you would bless the remainder of our time here as we hear the testimony of two who come to this crucial moment in their journey, revealing how they identify themselves, reminding us of how Christ was identified. In Him we place our hope with thanksgiving. Amen.